Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, perhaps you have one on your cell phone, an app on your cell phone, you can um, go there. Or if you need one of those, there is a Bible, should be in the pew in front of you. It'll be from the same uh, version that I'm using, and you can open up there. James chapter 2 in the New Testament. We live in a country, uh, in a civilization, in a society that loves confrontation, that loves conflict, that loves competition. Uh, Some of you in this room would describe yourselves as competitors, people that love to compete, that love to, you know, if you're in something, you're in there to win it. Whether it's you're playing basketball, a pickup game, or you're playing a board game at home, you know. Several families I know talk to say, we don't do board games at home because it's just too competitive, like we have issues with it, right? And so so we love competition. I mean, this afternoon, um, somewhere around a third to a half of our country will watch a game on television in some setting because we love the competition aspect of it. Now, some of you are saying, no, I like the commercials. Well, there's even competition about the commercials. Who's going to have the best commercial this year? And so they have all kinds. We just love this competitive nature. Our politics are competitive. People yelling back and forth at each other. We have, you know, if you go to Facebook, there are all kinds of competitive or confrontational things happening. And in James chapter 2, one of the reasons I mentioned earlier, this is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. One of the reasons for that is because there's this perceived conflict, confrontation, competition happening between James and another giant of the faith in Paul. And people think that James is saying things that are contradictory to Paul. And let me give you a, a, just some examples of what I'm talking about. If you look at what Paul wrote, there is a certain direction that Paul goes when it comes to what salvation requires and is made up of. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it says, For we conclude, this is Paul writing, that a person is justified by faith apart or not with the works of the law. So he says, we conclude that salvation comes by faith apart from the works of the law. He says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Or perhaps the most famous one is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So quick question. Where does Paul stand on works being a part of salvation? No. Like, right? Apart from works. Like, it's not going to be about works. You're saved by Grace through faith. Faith is what saves you. Faith and faith alone. And so people take that and say that's Paul's understanding of salvation. And my point is that's the understanding of Scripture throughout Scripture, including the Old Testament. It leads us to Jesus coming to die for us and that we believe in Christ alone and we are saved by faith alone. And then you have James chapter 2. I'm just going to read selected portions, then we'll talk about it for a minute, we'll read the whole thing. But James chapter 2, verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? So that's just a rhetorical question. Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. But he goes on uh, a little farther down in verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? Or then you get down to verse 24 and he says, You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Can you see how people think there's a little confrontation happening here? Like, what's going on? Paul says, faith alone, no works. James says, faith and works. Which is it? Which of these guys is right? Is Paul right? Is James right? And my answer to that is, yes. Both. But how? How can they both be right? They seem to be saying contradictory things. They seem to be confronting one another. It almost seems like James is confronting Paul. Here's the crazy thing about that. When you read all of Paul's stuff, it comes before James' stuff. So you're like, see, Paul has said it. Then James contradicted him. The truth is, James wrote his way before Paul. So the question becomes, so what's going on here? And this is what I want to suggest to you. And then we're going to break it down as we go through James' writing. That I believe that both of these guys are right and are in agreement with each other about what it means to be saved. And this is important stuff here. We're not talking about a, an issue on the sidelines of Christianity. We're talking about what salvation is all about. This is the center point of our faith. And here's what I want us to understand. Context is king in understanding what these guys are writing. To whom they're writing, about what they're writing, is important for us to understand. And what I'm going to tell you today is, I believe, and we're going to walk mainly through, obviously we're not going to spend a whole, we're going to talk about Paul, but we're going to talk really about James chapter 2. What I believe is these are not two guys looking at each other, screaming at each other in confrontation with one another. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you find out that James and Paul were friends. There's a portion where Paul says, I must go to Jerusalem to see my friend James. There's another portion where Paul brings a, a, a critique to the church, back to the Jerusalem church, where James is the pastor. And James agrees with Paul about the fact that Gentiles didn't have to become circumcised to be saved. He agrees with Paul about faith alone there. So these are not two guys that are standing, yelling at each other in confrontation. The way I pursue to see it, the way that I see what's happening here, is that these are two guys with their backs to each other that are fighting against two different kinds of attacks on the church. So Paul was a guy that would go around, start churches, tell people how to be saved, present the gospel to them, and then he would leave and go start another church. And immediately upon him leaving a church, someone would come into the church, a group of people they called the Judaizers, they would walk into church and they would, you know, it's like the week after he's gone, there'd be 20 new visitors at church. Like, wow, look at that, our numbers are going up, this is awesome. Paul should have left earlier. And they walk in and they say, so, do you like Paul? Man, we love Paul. Man, he told us to be saved. All we had to do was believe in Jesus. We have been far away from God and now we are saved. And they go, well, you might, you might be. You're kind of saved. See, what Paul told you was part of the story. But we've come to tell you the rest of it. We want to tell you that in order to be saved, you must be Jewish first. So you can't accept Jesus until you're Jewish. And if that means if you're a guy, that means circumcision has to happen. 
Paul would write about these people in Galatians and call them the mutilators of the flesh. And so when he says all that he says in Galatians and Ephesians, he is counteracting those people that says there are certain rules that you must follow in order to become a Christian. That you have to clean up your house first and then you can accept Jesus if you also agree to these terms and conditions. And he says that following Christ is simply about accepting him as your savior and he will change your life. So Paul is fighting against people that we call legalists. People that say there are certain rules that you have to follow in order to be right with God, in order to earn salvation. There were a lot of legalists in Paul's days. The Pharisees were legalists. The Sadducees were legalists. People that were around him, the scribes were legalists. People in his own churches would be uh, prone toward legalism. There were lots of legalists in Paul's day. There are lots of legalists in our day. I grew up in a Baptist church. There are lots of Baptist legalists. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? People that say, here's your list of things that you must do to earn the satisfaction of God in your life. Here's a list of things you cannot do. Here's a list of things that we're not sure if you can do, but let's just not do it just in case. That's who Paul's fighting against. James is talking against a whole other group of people. They're not legalists. They're what we call antinomians. Came to church, you're going to learn a new word today, all right? Antinomians means literally against the law. They were people who didn't believe that they had to do anything after they got saved but whatever they wanted to do. They believed that once they got saved, they could just simply live how they wanted to live, do whatever they wanted to do, be crazy as they wanted to be, sin all they wanted to sin, go out there and get crazy with it. And it didn't matter because they were saved. Paul actually talked against these people when he said, some of you say, let's just go sin the more. He goes, no, never do that. Never presume upon the grace of God. You don't say I've been saved so I can live however I want to live. So when James is writing, he's writing to say, listen, if you're going to have faith, it's going to change your life. The point James is making is that not all faith, in quotation marks, not all things that people claim to be faith are saving faith. And he gives us some examples in James chapter 2. Starting in verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good? Even the demons believe, and they shudder senseless person. I love, James doesn't pull any punches here. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by his works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, I want to say real clearly before we get into the meat of what's happening here in James chapter 2. I want to say real clearly what James is not proclaiming and what he is not arguing. James is not arguing that you must add your works to the work of Christ to make salvation happen. It's not saying that. Here's the reality. We cannot in any way add to the work of Christ. It is complete. It is done. It is sufficient. It is all that is needed. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, when he rose again from the grave, his work is finished. In fact, that's what he says from the cross. It is finished. And the idea there is not that it was finished and that it has to be finished again. The idea is that it was finished then and it is finished now. It wasn't like what happens in our lives when we complete a project or we do a chore and the next day we've got to do the chore again. Right? Like laundry. Y'all notice that you do laundry one week and by the next week you've got a whole other load of laundry? Or if you happen to live with four kids, hypothetically, you could do laundry almost every other day and still not catch up. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? So our sin problem is not like laundry that Jesus has to continually take care of. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that that's what used to happen with the Jewish sacrificial system, that every time they came, they had to give an offering to take care of their sin. But that Jesus has come and his sacrifice is once and for all. It is absolutely complete. So what James is not saying is that we somehow have to add our works onto top of Jesus' work in order to make salvation possible. Because if James was saying that, he would be contradicting the entire Bible. He would be diminishing the work of Christ. What he is saying is that the faith we have, if it is real faith, will involve a change of lifestyle that goes in line with what Jesus has called us to do. There are two words here that are important to understand. First is faith. You see, we think of faith as some kind of ethereal, some kind of in the sky, some kind of emotional response. But in the Bible, faith is a, has really two components. Anytime that's talking about faith, anytime it says you have been saved by faith, there are really two components that are a part of faith. True faith is faith that trusts God enough to obey God. Trust Him enough to obey Him. The second thing that we have in here is the word works. What does he mean by works? He's not talking about individual works. What is meant here is a lifestyle of loving God, of loving others, of being, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, not people that do the word, but doers of the word. Our lifestyles are characterized by doing what God has called us to do. And James' point in chapter 2 is this. If you are not a doer of the word, then your faith is useless. It cannot save. It's ineffective and it's dead. That faith without works is useless, ineffective, and dead. Look what he says in verse 15. I love this illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what they need, what good have you done? 
Right? Here's the point. You're walking along the street. You see somebody sitting over there. And this isn't somebody that's just not wearing fashionable clothes. This isn't somebody that's just got, you know, the Knights of Columbus instead of the polo shirt. Right? This is somebody that's in desperate need. They are unclothed. It's cold. It's like last, middle of last week cold. They are hungry. They are starving. And they don't have clothes that can keep them warm. And you walk by them. You see them on the street. And you go, man, God bless you. Hope you get warm and find food somewhere. Walk on past. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When we read this, the first thing that many of us think about is what he's saying here, that if we are not going to help the poor, then you have to analyze our faith. There is an element of that, but there's a deeper element that we must see first in that what is being said in this illustration is that you and I are the one that is without clothes and lacks daily food. Here's what James is saying. He's saying, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and yet it hasn't changed your life, it is like you were without clothes and without food on the side of the road, and somebody walked past you and promised you something good, and nothing changed. I see some blank stares there, all right? If you truly believe in Jesus, it will change your life. If it hasn't changed your life, then you don't have the real thing. It's like sometimes, you ever watch those, uh, you remember when they used to not uh, uh, advertise prescriptions on TV when that was forbidden? And now they do, but you know what they have to do every time they advertise a prescription? They have to tell the, the 182 side effects, right? And what I always find interesting is they'll put something up there, and uh, <laughs> the ones that are funny to me, first of all, are like they'll tell you the, the, the medicine, and then they'll say, do not take this if you're allergic to this medicine. Like, yeah, okay, I got that, I got that. But the one that's crazy to me is, I was watching one a few weeks ago, I don't remember what the, what the uh, ad was for, but it was for some nausea medication. And it said, you know, this is you take for nausea, for occasional nausea, should help relieve nausea symptoms within a day or two days or build up over time. And then it said side effects of this medication are nausea. And I'm like, well, then that's not an effective medication, right? If you take a pill for nausea and it gives you nausea, that is not the intention of the pill, right? And what he says here, okay, now listen, I want you to think about this. He says that if you are living your life the exact same way or you've gotten worse since you had faith in Jesus, then it didn't work. That means you don't have the real thing. Because if there's a failure and it's between Jesus failing and me, Guess where it's going to land? On me. So James is saying, and I know we read this and we think, well, I've got to go feed the hungry. And we're going to talk about that in a second. That is part of it. But the first point he's making is, if you haven't been changed by your faith, if it hasn't done something inside of you, you are like the person that was passed by on the side of the road. Not, And it's not because of the faith's fault. It's not because of what Jesus did on the cross fault. That means that something in your life didn't get the real thing. You didn't accept Jesus. You didn't truly allow him to change your life. You thought you said something that would make it sense. You went went to church a few times, you know all the lingo, you walked down an aisle, you went in the water, but nothing changed in your heart, then you have to ask the question, did I truly believe? And part of that is that when you see somebody in need, you don't just walk by and say, ah, whatever. His point here 
is that real faith places others in front of ourselves. One pastor said that the American church has a problem. And the problem we have is that we are receiving more than we've ever received. Information, finances, opportunities. And we're hoarding our spiritual resources. We're hoarding our financial resources. We're hoarding our emotional resources. We are taking in more than we've ever taken in. And he says, when you are a believer who takes in all the time and you don't give out, you become spiritually constipated and become cranky and irritable and judgmental. I know that's a graphic illustration, but it's true. When you take in and don't give out, You rob yourself of the central joy of your own life and you bring into question whether the faith you have is real. Some people get on to James here and say, boy, James, you're being harsh. The truth is James is actually probably here just echoing the teachings of his brother. Because in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40 through 43, Jesus is talking to the crowd. And he says, then he will also say to those on the left. Now, if you remember this story at all, this is an end time story. And he gathers people and he separates people to the right and to the left. And on the right, he says, you may enter into my kingdom. But he looks at the people on the left and he says, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Can I tell you something? If anything in my life, I never want to hear, that's it. Amen. I do not want Jesus to look at me and say, cursed, go to the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. That's going to be your company in eternal fire. Go. So what in the world happened to put him there? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Wait, Jesus, but I had faith in you. And he says, your faith didn't do enough to change your attitude of who you are. It wasn't real faith. It's clear from James, from Jesus, that if we are people who have accepted Christ as our Savior... He has changed our lives. It will change how we view people. It will change how we view life. It will change how we view everything in our existence. You've heard the old phrase, right? That true joy means Jesus first, others second, yourself third. Kind of got some national publicity recently. I was thinking about it because in the college football national championship game where Clemson absolutely thumped Alabama and all of God's people said, Amen. All right. Uh, at the end of that game, at the end of that game, I see some Alabama people smirking at me. It's all right. Yeah. At the end of that game, when the national championship winning coach was asked about his football program and what he did with his players and how he built a winning program, he went outside of football completely and he used that phrase. To me, I think about our theme has this year has been joy. And for me, joy is Jesus first, others second, yourself third. Gave testimony at the end of the game right there on the field. The point is, for him even though he just won what some people would consider to be the height of his professional career, his second national championship in the last few years, he says life's about things much bigger because he has been saved and it has radically changed his view of life.
He moves on to another illustration. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? He says, listen. I understand that you go, listen, I've got faith as as if that can be separated from works. He says, I will show you how much I believe. I will show you how much I agree with what Christ has done. I will show you how much I understand the reality of the gospel. I will show you my belief by what I do. Faith, belief, is only as good as the thing you put it into. So right now, you're sitting in pews. None of you, when you sat down, thought, I hope this pew will hold me. Because you have basis for it. You think about it. You know that it's going to do that. You just sit. On my many trips to Brazil, one of the things I've discovered in Brazil is they do not make chairs as sturdy as American chairs. So when you sit in a Brazilian chair, you sit still or you risk being on the floor. And multiple times in multiple trips, I have ended up on the floor as I've attempted to rock a little bit. The chair breaks apart and everyone is laughing at me. So you know what I do when I sit down in a Brazilian chair now? About three things. I usually stack three of them on top of each other, more support, and then I test it as I sit. Think about a child. You're training. You want to learn how to jump into a pool, right? You think about the trepidation in the child as they stand on the edge. and You come as close as you possibly can if you're a good parent. Some of you parents are like standing out in the middle and taunting your child. That's between you and the Lord, all right? But most of us come straight up to the edge and we want to, we want to help them. We want them to feel comfortable. And Come on, babe, just jump, jump. Are you going to catch me? Yes, I'm going to catch you. Are you sure? Can you? Yes, I'm going to catch you. Are, are you sure? Yes, I'm promised, baby. Just come on, jump. I'll be there. I'm ready for you. I'm ready to jump down. You're not going to move away. You're not going to let me fall. Listen, I have not drowned you in the bathtub yet. I'm not going to choose to do that in a public pool. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to catch you. So the child jumps and you catch and they begin to build faith as they put their life. We, we forget how big of a deal this is for them. They are putting their life in your hands. It's like a story I heard one time about a daredevil tightrope walker, which if you want to know job descriptions, that'll never be for me. Daredevil tightrope walker is one of them. This is a guy that had stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls. He was walking the tightrope. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. He's got the big pole and he's walking, you know, step by step. And those guys always like a little drama. So about halfway through, they always, you know, kind of like they're going to fall Got it completely under control. He walked back and forth. There's a big crowd on one side. He said, now I'm going to do something even more amazing. And he took a wheelbarrow. And instead of having his pole, he had a wheelbarrow. And he went with the wheelbarrow and balanced with the pole and the wheelbarrow. And he went across and back. And then he said, I'm going to do something more amazing. I'm going to take rocks. I'm putting rocks in here, 200 pounds of rocks in the wheelbarrow. And I'm going to walk it back. And so he walked it back and forth. So people are, you know, they're going nuts. They're like, man, you're the best I've ever seen. This is awesome. He said, how many of you now believe that you've seen me with the wheelbarrow, with the rocks in the wheelbarrow? How many of you believe that I could put a human being in this wheelbarrow and put them across on the tightrope and come back? We believe. Yes, sir. Everybody raised their hand. He said, all right, I need a volunteer. And every hand went down. Right? They didn't truly believe because they weren't willing to put their life in his hands. 
true faith is faith that's willing to put our lives in the hands of our Savior. It's not just understanding things with our mind. Intellectual belief in correct doctrine is not salvation. And I'm all for Bible knowledge. I am all for teaching. I am all for understanding the Bible better. But one of the things that this tells us right here in this scripture is the enemy, the devil, knows the Bible better than you. When he tempted Jesus, he quoted the Bible. And yet, his knowledge of the Bible, none of us in this room would say, has led him to saving faith. Amen? Just knowing it doesn't change our lives. There is something about faith that goes deep inside of us that changes who we are. And as a result, it changes what we do. And he gives two examples about real faith. And here's the thing he wants us to understand. Real faith. Faith works. Verse 21, he says, Wasn't Abraham our father? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, you are two. So let's just praise the Lord, right? Some, you know, y'all know that song? Okay, y'all acting like you don't know that. It's like the Christian hokey pokey, all right? We got to act like that, all right? Abraham, our father, justified by works. And his point here is that Abraham showed his faith in God by the way he acted when God called upon him. He placed literally his life, the heir to his name that God had promised him, he literally placed on an altar to give to the Lord and was ready to carry through with it because he trusted the Lord so much that Hebrews tells us he believed that even if God called him to slay the child, that he would raise him up again. His faith in God was unmatched in that moment. He says, not that. What James means here is not that Abram didn't have a relationship with God. Abraham wasn't a friend with God before that. What he's saying is that in that moment, he showed that God had changed his life to the point that he was willing to put anything in his hands. He gives us one illustration that we would expect. If I said he's going to give us an illustration of faith and I said Abraham with Isaac on the mountain, everybody would be like, yeah, that's a good one. He gives us another one that none of us would probably expect, which is Rahab the prostitute. Which, by the way, as far as I know, there are no Sunday school songs about Rahab, right? Nobody want, Rahab didn't want to do this growing up. This is not her goal. She didn't want to grow up to be that. She was in a society that already treated women as second-class citizens. And in the midst of that, here she is placed in a situation where she is not only a second-class citizen in that society, she is the worst of them as a prostitute. And yet it says, when God, when God called her to hide the spies, the people that had come to see the promised land God was giving them and directed them to go a different way to protect them, that she obeyed. She put her life on the line. Her works showed her faith. The point that James is making here is not that your works do the saving in your life. The point that James is making here is that your works demonstrate whether or not you have been saved. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in London over 100 years ago, like 150 years ago, had a church of like 10,000 people with no microphone or system. It's a beast, great preacher. 
When he preached this passage of scripture, he gave a really good illustration about an apple tree. I think we had a picture of an apple tree up here. All right. Now, this is what apple trees around this time of year probably look like, right? Because it's winter. They lose all their leaves. They don't have any, any fruit on it. But what if this spring, when everything else around you started to bud, when everything started to come up out of the ground, when the grass started growing again, you know, what if this is what this tree still looked like? Or what if this summer, when all the other trees around it, perhaps it's in an orchard surrounded by other apple trees, and those apple trees not only have buds, they have leaves now. Not only have leaves, they have apples forming that you can see. And instead of that, this tree looks like this. What's your assumption going to be about this tree? It's dead, right? Charles Spurgeon said, listen, the tree gets its life. Where does its life come from? It comes from its roots, that the roots in the ground provide the place to get the water, that that is where its sustenance comes from. He says the leaves and the apples and the fruit and the buds, those aren't the life of the tree, but they give evidence to whether the tree is alive or not. And so if you look at a tree and it is barren like this, you can rightfully assume it's dead. If it goes through an entire year and it never changes, it's dead. But if this tree in the spring gets buds and in the summer gets leaves and apples grow and next fall you're picking apples from your apple tree, you know the tree is alive. Spurgeon says it's the same way for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. If you look at our lives when it comes to spiritual works, when it becomes the works of Christ, and it is barren like this, it is rightful to assume that it is a dead faith. But if you see the fruit of what Christ has done in your life, then you can assume you're alive. My professor at Union used to always say, God did not call us to be judges, but he did call us to be fruit inspectors. And the question is, does your life demonstrate the fruit of Christ? Because if it doesn't, I'm not talking about perfection. We're not there. But I'm talking about moving more towards Christ than away. Is that what it shows? Or is it barren? And if it's barren, then you need to ask yourself the question, is my faith real? I'm not asking you if you've ever joined a church. I'm not asking you if you've ever walked down an aisle. I'm not asking you if you've ever been baptized. I'm not asking you if you've ever said a prayer out loud about asking Jesus to be your Savior. I'm talking about has your faith in Jesus Christ changed you? And I can tell you one of the most difficult places in the world to truly have a life-changing moment with Jesus is sometimes in the midst of a church where you know all the jargon, where you grew up with all the language, where you know what people want to hear, and you think you can get by on your own just doing that and not having your life radically transformed by Jesus. By the way, Paul agrees that you ought to work after salvation. Even in that most famous passage where he says we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through 10 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourself, it's God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. When we are saved by Christ Jesus, when we are transformed by Christ Jesus, we are created as a masterpiece in order that we may do the good works which he prepared ahead of us to do. The point is, when you're saved, your life will show it. Does yours. Let's pray together.